Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, the road to COP28, as experts gather in Bonn to set out plans for the next global climate summit, what needs to happen to save the planet? Ahead of this year's COP28 climate summit in Dubai, experts are gathered now in Bonn to set out the agenda for the meeting in December. But as they met, they were faced with the fallout from an Oxfam survey accusing the world's richest nations of spending less than a quarter of the promised $100 billion per year for international climate finance. With me now is Jan Kowalczyk, Oxfam's senior policy advisor on climate change. Um, thanks for coming on the programme, but let's start by getting these numbers clear. So this $100 billion pledge was agreed in 2009, ratified in Paris in 2015, and yet in no subsequent year has that amount actually been spent. Have I got that right? Well, the goal in 20, uh, 2009 was that developed countries would increase support to developing countries in support of climate action uh, to $100 billion a year by 2020. So um, they are not to criticize for not meeting the goal before 2020 formally, um, but they also have not met the goal and not kept the promise in the year 2020 when it should have been $100 billion a year, and it wasn't. And the same is true probably for the years 2021, 2022, and we are yet to see that they will, as projected, now finally reach that level in 2023, which would be three years late um, compared to what was promised. But the world's richest nations, they've said, look, you know, in 2020, we spent at least $83.3 billion. You've done a different set of calculations and say the real value is far lower than that. So explain. Well, that happens because the reported figures as submitted by developed countries through the official reporting practices and rules, um, they are looking at gross numbers. So they count all the money they or all the uh, actions or programs they funded or supported, they count the support at face value. And this makes a huge difference when you look at loans, for instance. Loans have to be repaid and the benefit of a loan for a receiving country lies in a public development loan being cheaper than a commercial loan. So that difference is the actual support that developing countries are getting. When you take that into account, the actual support value becomes much less than these 83.3 billion that developed countries claim to have reached. And we have estimated that the true value of uh, that support was about, uh, or at best, 24.5 billion US dollars. So much, much lower than what officially reported figures seem to suggest. How much would you say that the recent economic stress from, from the COVID pandemic to high inflation to the cost of living crisis, how does all that fit into the numbers? Well, that added, adds to the problems that developing countries are facing. They are already stressed in the financial um, headroom that they have, for instance. Um, the worsening debt situation in many countries is making this problem even harder for them. Uh, and then when they receive loans instead of grants to fund their climate action, for instance, that increases debts uh, and reduces the fiscal space of these countries even further. And that means these countries that even have even less resources available to fund actions to adapt to worsening 
climate change, protect the citizens from oncoming harm uh, due to extreme weather events, for instance. Um, and as you say, inflation is another problem because back in 2000, or now, the 100 billion goal, if even if it was met, would allow to fund much less than it was originally planned to fund in the year 20, 2009 when it was originally promised. So this is, of course, a big benefit. You get much less climate action for these 100 billion dollars once they have been achieved. We're talking quite generally here, so I'm wondering if you can give me some examples. You know, which countries are we talking about here? Where are those places where loans are being, oh, the loans are replacing the much needed grants? Uh, well, globally, all climate finance, most of it comes in the form of loans. So it's about 75% of the 83.3 billion is coming in the form of loans that increase the debt levels. And the majority of these loans are not even concessional enough that they would be considered as development loans, but they are loans at market rates, in some cases, worse than the debt levels of countries even more. And uh, so 75% globally is coming in the form of loans. And the countries that provide a lot of loans in their support, Japan, for instance, most of the climate finance from Japan is loans. Uh, the same is true for France or Spain, and even Germany is usually um, a big player on climate finance as well, is providing about half of its uh, climate finance in the form of loans. And of course, that means that the actual support value of this climate finance is lower than these cross figures that they report. And then in terms of the recipients, um, who, who's losing out? Where, where are the consequences being felt? All around, because you have um, climate impacts in all developing countries. Some are more vulnerable than others, but of course, all of these countries are suffering from a climate crisis that many of which have not con uh, contributed at all to it. Um, the worst situation you have for countries that don't even have high emissions, but are suffering a lot from the worsening impacts of climate change. And if these countries are then given loans in order to adapt to the problems that they have not created, that is, of course, even more unfair than the problem of climate change itself. So these countries are asked to pay for a crisis by repaying those loans for a crisis they have not contributed to. So how does climate finance need to change if we're really going to tackle the climate crisis? Well, first of all, developed countries must meet their promise. And this would also include compensating for underachievement in previous years through higher provision of support in subsequent years. So that's step number one. But of course, this wouldn't be enough at all because the costs of action in developing countries is much, much higher than these 100 billions. Even if these 100 billions were entirely coming in the form of grants to these countries, they would need way more. The cost of adapting to a changing climate alone is going to increase to up to 340, 350 billion dollars every year by 2030, which is an estimate by the United Nations Environment Program, uh, or the costs of recovering from the losses and damages unavoidable now because of the worsening climate crisis might reach levels of up to 600 billion a year by 2030. So these figures are much higher than the 100 billion. So we need to tick the box of achieving this 100 billion promise, but of course countries need to go way beyond that and in subsequent years drastically increase the support they're giving to vulnerable countries. Something you haven't mentioned, but a lot of people are talking about, is, is the need for, for more joined up thinking, more, more collaboration, more partnerships. And Sultan Al-Jaba, who's the president-designate of COP28, has said that governments and activists really need to, to show unity. And um, he said we need to stop the finger pointing. Um, we need to stop this polarization. We need to flip the page and start focusing on being optimistic, positive and working together in harmony. What's your take? Well, I, it's totally clear the climate crisis 
can only be mastered um, with an unprecedented um, level of global cooperation. And that has become clear. And the Paris Agreement is designed around that understanding. And I also totally subscribe to the notion of positive spirits. I mean, yes to all of that. However, of course, we have to hold governments accountable for the action or the inaction on the climate crisis, for instance, or for pursuing false solutions out of vested interests. And in this case, on climate finance, also when countries do not keep up the pro or do not meet the promises they made in support of uh, vulnerable countries acting on climate change. This is a matter of climate justice. But your report does say that they will live up to those promises um, and they will hit that $100 billion target, the, the rich nations, this year. Or do you feel that's too little too late? Well, this is a projection by developed countries. Uh, when they found out that they won't uh, keep their promise for 2020, then they created or they came up with a projection that they will meet that desired level in 2023. And of course, that's an important step to take uh, or a box to tick, uh, but it doesn't, uh, that, that's not enough. And we need to move beyond that. And that's very clear when you look at the rising costs of the escalating crisis. Um, and therefore, yes, it is good that they make it. It's too little, too late, but it's still a box to tick for us. The Bonn Climate Conference is taking place um, as we speak. I mean, what are your expectations regarding what potential outcome could be, what progress can potentially be, be made? Um, or are you thinking, well, no, you're going to remain sceptical? Well, I, I have to be optimistic, of course, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this work I'm doing. Um, the Bonn climate talks, they're not meant to produce actual results that would be adopted. They prepare the next UN climate summit, COP28 in Dubai. And uh, while they are not reaching any final results in uh, most of what they do here over the next two weeks, uh, they, of course, have to advance the discussions on critical aspects that could can make the COP28 a success. And I would say there's about three, three or four areas where they need to advance these discussions. One is more um, support for finally fi phasing out fossil fuels completely. The second would be in uh, agreeing on global targets for the expansion of renewable energy with all the support mechanisms that developing countries might need, of course. Um, the third is we need um, advancing the discussion on fleshing out the details of a new fund that was agreed last year to support vulnerable countries in addressing um, loss and damage unavoidable from climate change. So this is another thing that is going to be hashed out over the next two weeks in Bonn. Uh, and then finally, of course, advance the discussion on um, the plan to replace the 100 billion goal with a new and more ambitious global goal on climate finance that would be adopted only in uh, 2024, so only next year, but of course this bond talks and the COP29 can of course already uh, agree on key aspects of this new goal so that it would be more adequate and more climate just. Jan Kowalczyk, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Still to come here on the agenda, getting greener, we'll consider exactly where China stands in the race to net zero. Welcome back to the agenda. The United Nations and many others have told the world that the time for climate action is now. But just how hard is the world really working to hit green targets? And where does China fit in? With me now is Eric Solheim, Vice President of the Green Belt and Road Coalition. Thanks ever so much for coming on the programme. Now, we are about six months out from COP28. So just where do we stand in terms of the world hitting those climate targets? 
Uh, we are in a much better position than most people realize. Uh, we have been very, very slow up to now, but now we are moving from being slow to going very fast. But the focus is not the diplomacy, probably very little, if anything, will come out of the talks in Dubai. Uh, but uh, if we focus on the political economy, if we look to what main political leaders of the world, say President Xi Jinping of China, or President Biden of the US, or Prime Minister Modi of India, what they do, and if we look into what the big companies of the world, what the Microsoft or the Huawei or the Alibaba uh, or the Apple, if we look into what they do, uh, there's a lot of room for optimism. You're optimistic, but 2030 is, is closer than many people realize. I mean, what needs to be done to make sure the world is on track? You know, it does loom large. I mean, first of all, of course, the situation is very serious. We have been very slow in acting. Last year, China had a big drought in uh, Sichuan. The year before, it has an enormous flooding in Hunan province. We have seen wildfires in Spain, in California. Uh, we have seen many, many, uh, we had a huge flooding in Pakistan, which was so devastating. So we, we see the impact of climate or lack of climate action every day. But now we are moving much, much faster because the main political leaders of our time understand both that it's good for the environment to act, but it's also good economic industrial policies to act, and then we'll get the action uh, which will be uh, will, which will change change this. It's not that we will probably reach 1.5 degrees, which is the global target. We may not hit that, but still we will be able to reduce the speed of warming of the planet uh, much more than we thought until recently. You talk about the, the will of governments, but there are a lot of corporates, a lot of organizations, big ones, that have come up with their own paths to net zero. Um, the EU's Green Deal um, is just one example. I mean, do you think things like that are going far enough, or do we still need maybe a fundamental change in our attitude to, to climate resilience? Absolutely, we need that fundamental change in our attitude. We need to put this on the top of the global agenda and on the top of the business agenda. But the good news is, of course, that main actors is doing that. Let me give you one example. Last year, Indonesia brought deforestation down to zero. That's a fantastic result of the second biggest rainforest nation in the world. No one thought it possible until very recently. That's due to great policies of the government of President Jokowi. That's also due to great action of some of the biggest companies. There's an Indonesian company called RGE, and it's the, probably the biggest paper and pulp company in the world, so it matters what they do. And there's zero deforestation in the value chain. And while they were part of the problem in the past, admittedly, now they're part of the solution, really driving Indonesian business into going green and solving the problem. Part of the solution, though, is finding the money to, to pay for it all. And something we've talked about earlier in the programme um, are concerns around climate finance. You know, how close are we to ensuring that those poorer nations who are on the front line of the climate crisis, who suffer the brunt, perhaps, of damage, how, how close are we to ensuring they aren't being exploited by richer nations? Absolutely, it's a fair demand by developing nations, which where there was a breakthrough last year in Sharm el-Sheikh in uh, Egypt to get compensation for the loss and damage for climate change. But those developing nations, these are really successful, take a somewhat different approach. And that's China and India, but of course, these are the two biggest 
developing nations in the world, they see climate as a problem. But both China and India also see China's environment as an enormous opportunity to capture market and go green. Let's take China as an example. I mean, there is no Chinese brand like, say, Toyota. Everyone knows Toyota all over the world. You go to Africa, America, <laughs> to Europe, everyone knows Toyota. So rather than compete in the old market for cars, China leapfrogged into electric cars. This year, BYD will be the biggest electric car company in the world, passing Tesla. This year, China will export more cars than Japan. And these cars are nearly all electric. 60% of all electric cars in the world are made in China. Close to 80% of all electric batteries in the world are made in China. So this shows that for China, going green is, yes, very, very important for the environment. But it's also a very, very sound industrial policy to capture market and create jobs. But what about climate finance, about the rich nations helping the, the, those poorer nations to, to, to get the, the balance right? How can that much needed finance be mobilised? This is, as I said, a very just demand. Developing nations uh, demanding operations for the loss and damage caused by developed nations. I mean, for example, American emissions up to this point is 25 times Indian emission up to this point, and of course, even more if you compare to Africa. So the havoc is caused by the developed nations. However, I'm realistic. I don't think huge amount of money will be delivered. Also realistic that aid money has never in history really been the most eff efficient way of helping. What is really efficient is, is uh, private investment, private uh, companies, and bringing down price. And when China, largely, but also India, has brought down the price of solar energy by 90%. Well, that's the best help you can give to Malawi or Madagascar, the poorest nations in the world because it means that they can buy the solar energy by their own means. They don't need any handout from any rich country, because going from coal to solar in Africa, uh, thanks to China bringing down the price, well, it's good for the environment, it's good for people's health, but it's also good for the economy. You create more jobs at a lower price than if you stick to the old. So the old debate that you need to finance and the green development all the time is somewhat old because largely going green is now the most cost-efficient way of developing. So you've talked there about all the, the cost-effectiveness of going green, of China investing particularly in, in renewables. But something I also want to talk to you, um, to you about is something you've been quite involved in, in China's Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, how do we balance huge, much-needed, but energy-consuming development projects with the need to be carbon neutral? Look, when, uh, when President Xi Jinping launched Belt and Road in Kazakhstan back in 2013, it was to a large extent a brown initiative. It promoted coal investment, and some of the investments can be, could be criticized with good reasons from a green perspective. But in 2021, President Xi promised that China will stop all overseas coal investment which means, of course, that all investments will be solar and wind and hydro and green hydrogen. And very interestingly, this change in China happened exactly at the same time when 
Bangladesh, Kenya, Indonesia, Pakistan also told China, look, we don't look into future coal investment, we want investment in the, in the green sector. So today, Belt and Road is the biggest driver of green development in the world. It's the biggest investment initiative in our, our era. And it's now, as everyone says, the background color of Belt and Road is green. What we need to do even better is to mobilize all the Chinese companies to do more green investments in other developing countries. Um, Luc Longi is the biggest solar company in the world. Uh, Three Gorges is the biggest hydropower company in the world. Seattle is the biggest electric battery company in the world. BYD is the biggest electric car companies in the world. We should encourage all these companies to more investment in the other developing countries. And I'm sure we will see a lot of this in the future. So China will be a main driver of the green development in also the rest of the developing world. Now, as you say, energy transition and renewables are going to be incredibly important here. You talk quite a lot about China, but, but what about um, the, the rest of the planet? Where do you think we are um, realistically in that process? The good news is that all the four major economies on, of the world is moving now in, in the same direction, even if we all know that there are geopolitical tensions. President Biden has launched massive subsidies for green development in the United States in the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, green hydrogen, electric cars in America will have massive subsidies. Yes, this document is somewhat protectionistic. It's about developing jobs in America, not jobs in China or India or somewhere else, because his waters is in America. But it will have massive impact on American business. In Europe, the European Union has launched a Green New Deal, again, making it much easier for European companies to invest in the green, more difficult and more costly to remain in the old fossil fuels. And in India, Prime Minister Modi is launching a number of green uh, missions for India, uh, but he also has the slogan, make it in India. So of course he wants jobs, green jobs in India. But while there are tensions and we, we need to cooperate, uh, when China, the US, India and Europe all are moving in green direction, we will see a massive stepping up of renewable energies, electric cars, green hydrogen, all this. So lots of green initiatives, but concerns come with those two. I mean, do you think we should be worried, as many climate watchers are, that the next COP meeting will be taking, in a place, taking place in an area so heavily reliant on oil and gas? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, we should be worried that diplomacy is delivering so little. Look in Glasgow back two years ago, and to the credit of the Brits, they organized it in a brilliant way. But the main quarrel among the diplomats made no sense. That was, should we, shall we face out or shall we face down coal? Some European leaders even was seen weeping, crying on TV because it, they didn't get it their way. Because it had no significance whatsoever for the world outside. So it was just a diplomatic game, no consequences for the world. Uh, but that's why we need to focus on the political economy, because that's where we see the attraction. Then moving to the Middle East, yes, uh, this should not be allowed to be an oil-infected um, uh, conference of the parties. But we should also realize that the Middle East is in many ways also now a very promising area. Uh, for uh, climate action. That's also, interestingly enough, to some extent, thanks to China. Because when China brought Iran and Saudi Arabia together, 
Uh, we will see the tensions going drastically down in the Middle East. The war in Yemen will probably come to a stop. And China, Nasser, and Iran, and Saudi Arabia, they will not start loving each other, but the tensions will be much lower. That will make it possible for a nation like Saudi Arabia to focus on the domestic development. And these are nations with huge amount of money, yes, made from oil in the Emirates, Qatar, um, Saudi Arabia. But when they can move this money into domestic development, which will largely be green, we will see the Middle East being a huge market for renewable energies, tree planting in the deserts, and a lot of other good developments. Eric Solheim, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up soon on the agenda, a question of longevity. What does an ageing workforce mean for global productivity? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the Agenda team here in London, goodbye. D-Dime, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. <laughs>